out before I preach. Kind of like that. <laughs> Soon we'll have a curtain opening, you know, and I'll... No, no. Is that right? Yeah, good. <laughs> oh, my. <clears throat> Welcome. Well, NASA terrified the people who lived in the California coast last year when they did a study and said that there's a 99.9% .9 chance that the big one is going to hit L.A. in the next three years. The big one refers to an earthquake well over five magnitudes on the Richter scale. Now, the, the person who put out this study, that is the, the main geophysicist, Dr. Andrea Donnellan, said, we didn't mean to say that it was going to happen. 99.9%? That sounds pretty definite. But then the, the U.S. Geological uh, Group uh, did a survey, and they said, now we want to... Uh, uh, we want to calm the people down. We're skeptical that these, uh, this study is accurate. Accurate. We believe the probability is only 85%. Thanks a lot. Now, apparently there was uh, an earthquake in La Habra last year that was about 5.1, so technically it fits into that category of over 5, but it wasn't the big one. What everyone is convinced of is that someday, sometime, California coast is going to experience an earthquake of unprecedented proportions, according to the Richter scale. Now, the Richter scale is something that was invented by Charles Richter way back in 1935. He's called the godfather of earthquake science. Very interesting uh, individual. And the Richter scale is a standard that goes usually from 2 to 8 to uh, measure with a seismograph the intensity of the shaking of the ground. Apparently they measure uh, 60 miles away from the epicenter and then every uh, movement, it's, uh, it, it's designed that every uh, number that is from 3 to 4 is multiplied by 10. So a 4 is worse than a 3 and a 5 is 10 times worse than a 4. Anything, apparently there are earthquakes going on all the time that are around the two range, and you and I don't even feel them. They can barely be measured by a seismograph, but uh, they're taking place. Uh, a moderate earthquake often reveals some major damage with walls cracking or collapsing, chimneys falling, furniture moving. That's kind of in the moderate range, and the moderate range is around six. When you get to eight, it's almost total destruction. The ground will, uh, on the surface, will wave like the ocean. Structures destroyed, landslides. Apparently the biggest earthquake ever measured was in 1960. And it was a 9.5 on the Richter scale. If eight is total destruction, when this hit in Chile back in the 60s, thousands lost their lives. We think of the big earthquake that hit uh, San Francisco in 1906. It was a 7.9. And thousands lost their lives, and because buildings weren't prepared for earthquakes, uh, tenement houses fell and people were trapped, and then 
A fire took place that burned San Francisco for four days, and many people who were trapped couldn't be rescued because of the fire. Earthquakes fascinate us, and they terrify us. Because we really can't predict them. Charles Richter, the, the father of earthquake science, said this, no one but fools and charlatans try to predict earthquakes. So the fools predict, and the science, scientists are mesmerized. And yet we find out something interesting when our, we study our Bibles, especially around the Passion Week, that earthquakes and Jesus are often connected. Did you know that? Uh, turn in your Bibles to uh, Matthew 27, or you can just look up at the screen as we uh, look at some verses that talk about the fact that earthquakes have theological significance. I would say to you, God is behind them. I would say to you that an earthquake is God saying to the world, sit up and take notice. Listen, you're fragile. I'm in control. The very first earthquake is the earthquake that took place at the cross. We read in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 50 that when Jesus was on the cross, he had willingly given himself to be crucified. He wasn't captured like a criminal who was trying to get away. He committed no crime and willingly submitted himself to Judas and his kiss and the soldiers and their chains. He went through all of the mock trials in the kangaroo court and willingly died on the cross because he came to die for your sin and mine. Jesus came into the world to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to die on the cross. And so on the cross it says in Matthew 27 and verse 50 that Jesus cried out, It is finished! And when he said that he meant that the atonement he came to to secure for every person in the world had now been paid. In six hours, the infinite God paid an infinite price so your sin and mine could be forgiven. And he gave up his spirit. Or as the old King James puts it, he gave up the ghost. He willingly gave up his life. Jesus was not killed in that sense. He gave it up as he was crucified. But then we read in verse 51, a, a beginning of events, several events that took place. Verse 51 says, Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, the temple was divided into two sections, a holy place where the priest would minister, and the holy of holies where God dwelt, that is the focal presence of God, and the high priest could only go in there once a year. The curtain said, you cannot enter here. And when Jesus died in a great symbolic fashion, in a great declaration of the wonderful power of God, the curtain was torn from top to bottom. Now this curtain is 30 feet high, and it's as thick as, as a hand span, about five or six inches. No one could reach the top, and no one could tear it, but it was torn by God declaring to all the world that now in the death of Jesus Christ, the way which that was once barred to all men is open to all men through Jesus Christ. The 
curtain was torn. And the earth shook. There's the earthquake. How would you measure that on the Richter scale? Well, it says that rocks split. <laughs> and that's somewhere around a 7 or an 8. I don't know whether it was localized. You know, we don't always feel the earthquakes that are happening on the other side of the nation. Or whether it shook uh, miles and miles away, like the San Francisco earthquake had a, a span north to south of 400 miles and a, a width of 60 miles. But I know Jerusalem shook. And the high priests, they shook. And the guards shook. And God was getting everyone's attention. Listen, I've got something to say. Look at the cross. The next verse tells us something that happened that is almost impossible to believe. It's the only gospel that tells us in verse 50, uh, 53, tombs were opened. And holy ones came out of their graves. And they appeared in the holy city. You say, what in the world is happening here? Well, I think this is kind of like an appetizer. I think this is the foretaste of what God is going to do when he comes for all his people in that final day of resurrection. And we're all able to come out of our tombs. Not everyone, though. Only those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Holy people doesn't mean perfect people. It means people that are forgiven by Jesus. And those people who put their faith and trust in him, they got up and the scriptures tell us that they even went into the city of Jerusalem and they appeared to many people. Boy, I sure miss old Levi, don't you? Yeah, but I saw him the other day. I don't, I don't know how it works. I have a million questions about this, but it happened. And it got people's attention. But then look at verse 54. There was a Roman guard, a centurion. When centurions are mentioned in the Gospels, and even in the book of Acts, they're always mentioned in a positive light. Did you know that? Roman centurions, these are leaders of groups of 100, are always mentioned in a positive light. This centurion, who was just doing his duty, felt the earthquake, probably saw the rock split. In fact, it says in verse 54, when he saw or felt the earthquake and all the things that were happening, he was amazed. He was terrified. And he said, this is the Son of God. Right on. In fact, he saw more clearly than the religious leaders of that day. He saw more clearly than a lot of people who go to church every Sunday in America. This Jesus is not just a good teacher. He's God the Son. In the flesh. Come to die for my sin and yours. And the earth shook. But let me give you some insight on some theological significance. At least a very real possibility. When the law was given in the Old Testament given to Moses on Mount Sinai. What happened to Mount Sinai? It shook. Oh, it burned and there was smoke, but the mountain shook when God gave his law. And it's very possible, as Warren Worsby says, that this earthquake symbolizes 
that the demands of God's holy law have been satisfied by the Son of God. Remember, he said, I've come not to discard the law, but to fulfill it. And when he died, all of the laws that were required to satisfy the justice of God, to appease the wrath of God, to wash away your sin and mine, it all had been satisfied. Jesus said, it is finished. And as the law came with a shaking of the mountain, so the laws completed with a shaking of the earth. The laws completed. Atonement has been made. There's another earthquake associated with Jesus, and you'll find it in the very next chapter. This is the one associated with the empty tomb. The first was with the cross. The second is with the tomb. We read in verse 1, it was after the Sabbath, the first day of the week. We now call the Lord's Day, simply because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Worship used to be on Saturday. Actually, it started Friday night at 6 and went to Saturday night sundown. That is the Sabbath, and it still is the Sabbath. The Sabbath's never changed. But Christians began to work on the worship on the first day of the week because that's the day that Jesus came out of the tomb. After the Sabbath, the first day of the week, the women came to the tomb. Very significant. Someone said, yeah, they came to the tomb. The men didn't come because they had so much to lose. You know, the Romans were looking to kill them. The women didn't have anything to lose. That's why they came. A man must have came up with that idea. I'm convinced that these women were just deep followers of Jesus and were willing, willing to risk, risk their lives and the shame of being identified with him. They came to anoint the body. Bodies in that day were wrapped the same day and put in a tomb. There was no embalming process. And loved ones would come and they would go into the tomb. There would be a stone over the mouth of the tomb and they would go into it and put the spices on the tomb to try to prevent decay, at least the smell, as long as they could. And He might have been anointed when he went in and he was anointed again a few days later. That's why they came. And we read in verse 2, they were concerned as they were coming to the tomb because who's going to roll away the stone? This thing's heavy. It's in a track. It might have been round. Probably was round. How are they going to push it, though? They didn't have the ability to push it. Plus, it was sealed and Roman guards were there. How are we going to enter into the tomb? That didn't stop them. They still came. But on their way, look at verse 2, there was a violent earthquake. Where do you want to put this on the Richter scale? I'm still up there around eight. <laughs> and the Bible tells us that this happened not because of the San Andreas Fault. This happened because an angel came down. An angel came down, an angel of the Lord, and he rolled away the stone, breaking the Roman seal. And perhaps the stone fell out of its track and was laying flat on the ground, and he sat on it, and I would like to add, with attitude. <laughs> Can't you see him there? I mean, he's having fun. This is exciting. This is the greatest event in the world. He rolls the stone away. It falls. He sits down on it and says, boy, this is going to be good. <laughs> and the guards, as we're going to see in a minute, are shaking. 
the ground was not the only thing that was shaking. And the women are shaking, and the whole city is shaking. And they come, and they see the angel, and, and they're afraid. Verse 3 and 4, because the, the angel's appearance was as white as lightning. By the way, in the Bible, when earthquakes take place, there is often thunder and lightning. When Jesus died, it was as dark as could be at midday. His clothes were as white as snow. And they were terrified at his appearance. And the guards were so afraid of him that they shook and they became like dead men. Now, they didn't die, but they fainted. Boom. They're just laying there, totally out. And the women step over the guards and talk to the angel. You've come to see the one who was crucified to anoint his body, the Nazarene, Jesus. Is that why you've come? Yes, that's why we've come. He's not here. He's alive. And they could hardly take the message in. But when they did, they left the tomb with great joy. The angel said to them in verse 5 and 6, don't be afraid. That's the message of Easter. There's no reason to be afraid. Yes, but I'm a sinner. Jesus died for your sins. But God's a holy God. He satisfied the holy law. But what if he doesn't accept me? If you accept Jesus, he accepts you. That's the deal. Don't be afraid. He's not dead. He's alive. I've often heard people say, you know, even if Christianity isn't real, I still like it. I say rubbish. Are you used to living in a delusional world? Do you like things that aren't real? Is your world filled with fantasy? Oh, I forgot soap operas. Yeah, some of... <laughs> It is true for some of us, right? No, I want real. If this thing about Jesus is not real, I don't want to waste my Sunday morning. If this isn't true, I don't want to waste my life. But it is true. Think about it. There's no way to explain the empty tomb except the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Who moved the stone? The soldiers didn't do it. They were there to guard it, to make sure the disciples didn't get in. The disciples didn't do it, do it because they were frightened that their lives would be taken. The Jews didn't do it because they're the ones that took his life, at least the leaders. There's no way the tomb could be empty except God raised his son. And that's why we celebrate Easter. That's why it's so exciting. Come. Come here. Take a look at the tomb. And another gospel writer says they actually went in the tomb. There was another angel there. The tour guide. This is where his head was. This is where his feet were. When you go to Jerusalem today, and this probably isn't the tomb, but the garden tomb, run by the Church of England. Huh. Oh, that's an amazing sight. And you go in that tomb, and you see where the head is and where the feet would have been, and it's empty. And you come out rejoicing, because Jesus is alive. 
And the earthquake said, listen, world, something great has just happened. Don't miss it. What's the theological, theological significance? Jesus has conquered death. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be unto God through Jesus Christ who killed death. I love the Getty song. It says he crushed death to death. And death is dead. And there's no reason for you to follow a dead way of life. The theological, theological significance of the earthquake is that Jesus has killed death and he is the prince of life and if you hitch your wagon to him, you'll end up in heaven. If you trust Jesus Christ, you'll have eternal life. But there's one more. You say there's one more earthquake connected with Jesus Christ? Well, at least one. And this is in the Old Testament book of Zechariah. It's Zechariah chapter 14. And this earthquake is connected with the Mount of Olives, Mount Olivet. It didn't happen during Passion Week like the cross and the empty tomb. In fact, it hasn't happened yet. It was the prophet Isaiah who said the Lord Almighty is going to come with thunder and earthquake and great noise and windstorm and tempest and flames of devouring fire. And when you read the book of the Revelation, there are multiple times when earthquakes are coming and it's in the judgment of God. You can read about the earthquakes in the book of the Revelation in chapter 6 and chapter 8 and chapter 11, and even chapter 19, the background for the Hallelujah Chorus. Because when Jesus shows up again, there's going to be a series of earthquakes. It says in Revelation 16, 18, there will come flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. Exactly what Isaiah predicted. But it, the writer of the book of the Revelation, the Apostle John says, no earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on the earth. So tremendous is the quake. So I've got to put this above eight, and, and I've got to put it above 9.5, which happened in Chile in 1960. I've got to put this off the scale. So Zechariah is predicting the same thing, and he talks about the time when the Almighty Lord will come, the day of the Lord. And nations will be fighting against the Lord and it'll be focused in Israel. The Lord is going to come and fight against the nations. And then verse 4, on that day, Jesus' feet will land on the Mount of Olives. Such a significant mountain. It's the place where he came down on Palm Sunday. At the foot of that mountain is the garden where he wept and he was betrayed. And not far from that mountain uh, is the place where he was crucified. It was from that mountain that he ascended into heaven after 40 days after the crucifixion. He ascended from this mountain. He's coming back to this mountain. On that day, his feet will land on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. And the mountain will be split in two. The, the fracture, the fault line, is north-south, so the mountain will be split in half. 
half of it going to the north and half of it going to the south. This is off the scale. What interests me, though, is that several years ago, some oil companies were doing seismic studies in Israel. Uh, they, w- they would often joke that, uh, you know, Israel is this beautiful land, the only land in the Middle East without oil. But now they found some. Actually, it's off into the ocean. And it may be one of the largest oil sources ever discovered, or gas, I guess it's natural gas there. But a company was looking for oil. And they discovered a giant fault, get this, running east and west precisely through the Mount of Olives. It's the very place where the Lord said he would come back again. I said the fault line was north and south. It's east and west. And half of the mountain will go to the north and half will go to the south. And this is exactly where the oil companies, not searching for confirmation to the scripture, have found the Mount of Olives could go at any time. And I like what one Bible commentator said, it is only awaiting the divine foot. When God sends an earthquake, he wants to tell us something. And the theological significance is that Jesus is coming again. And all who put their faith and trust in him are excited because he comes for us to take us home. Jesus said, don't fear. I'm leaving, but if I leave, I'll come again. I'll receive you unto myself that where I am, you'll be with me. So don't let your hearts be troubled if you believe. But if you don't believe, let me tell you, my friend, Jesus is coming again, and it will be a time of terror for you. You say, I thought God is a God of love. He is. He loved you so much, he set Jesus to die for you. But if you reject this love, his judgment is the only thing that's left. And the theological significance is that Jesus is coming again. And when he comes, not only the earth will shake, but the heavens will shake. Three times in the Gospels, men will faint from terror. They will be apprehensive about what is coming on the world, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Or or look at what it says in Hebrews. We've got this on the screen for you, so you don't need to turn. It says in Hebrews chapter 12, the words once more indicate removing what can be shaken, that is, what is created. So when Jesus comes, the world is going to shake and what is created will be destroyed so that that which cannot be shaken will remain. When Jesus comes again, he separates the sheep sheep and the goats. When Jesus comes again, he takes his own unto himself, judgment to the rest. When Jesus comes again, he shakes everything that doesn't trust in him and it is destroyed so that those who cannot be shaken live forever. Look at verse 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And here's our response. Let us be thankful and let us worship. Our hearts should be characterized. Our lives should be marked by gratitude and submission to God. We ought to worship the God who is holy, worshiping him acceptably with reverence and awe because our God is what? 
He's an awesome God. He's a consuming fire. He's a God of love, and he's a God of justice. And by the way, that's what Easter tells us. He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all on the cross, rose him again from the, from the tomb for our salvation? Don't fear those who can kill the body. Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So this is a great message. It's an exciting message. This is Easter Sunday. We ought to be really thrilled if we're believers. If we're not believers, we ought to be shaking in our boots before the earth shakes. Because Jesus is coming again. Psalm 62 and verse 2 says, He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. I'm in a fortress that is impregnable. I'm in Jesus who can never be moved. I'm safe and secure in him. Now let the heavens be joyful. Let the earth her song begin. Let the whole world keep triumph and everyone therein. Their notes let all things blend, invisible, invisible, for Christ the Lord is risen, and we have life that will never end. I don't know men's hearts, but I sure hope that Winston Churchill was a true believer. Ah, you can point out some faults about him, but I can probably point out some faults about you, and I have a few of my own. I'm hoping he was a real believer, but I do know this. When he died, there was a great service in St. Paul's Cathedral, and he arranged the service. There was a, a long liturgy. And by the way, the hymn we sang today is one of the national hymns in England. And uh, you can go on YouTube and watch the Queen of England singing, singing these great words about our Father who cares for us. I love it when governmental leaders sing theological songs. haven't seen that for a while. But Churchill had it all planned, and, and he planned at the end of the service to have a bugler high in the dome of St. Paul's play taps, which is the universal sign that the day is done. And then after a pause, another bugler played revelry, which is the universal sign of a new day beginning. And the message was this, I'm dead, but I'm alive. It's goodbye to this world and hello to eternity. And that's what the resurrection is all about. Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed, let me ask you this simple question. Have you personally trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? You say, I believe it. Well, it's not just enough to agree that it's true. You have to personally receive it. To as many as received him, to those individuals, Jesus gives the power and the authority to be called the children of God because you have believed in his name. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ, will you do it today? He died in your place. He rose again to give you life. And if you'll say, Lord Jesus, save me. If you'll say that from an honest heart. If you'll say, Lord, I want to turn from my sin and love you and trust you. I want to be thankful. I want to worship you. I want my life to be marked as a real believer in Jesus. 
I believe the resurrection is true, and that makes all the difference in the world. I believe Jesus is coming again to shake the world, and I want to be in him so I won't be shaken. If you'll say, Lord Jesus, save me, he'll save you today. Will you do it? Heavenly Father, speak to every heart in Jesus' name.